are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. There are certain things that just get better with age, right? They get better with age. I was thinking about it this week, even Googled it. Uh, classic cars get better with age. I'm not talking about like your 86 Honda. It may be running, but it doesn't mean it's better. But I mean like your 64 Corvette gets better with age. Uh, your 57 Chevrolet gets better with age, right? Uh, if, you're an in, if you play an instrument, if you play guitar, your guitar, right? As it gets older, it just sounds better. Some of you are, you know, wine aficionados. An old wine gets better with age. Jeans get better with age. They just do. If you are a boot-wearing person, cowboy boots, they just get better with age. If you uh, were given a, a cast iron uh, pan by your great-grandmother, right? You're not supposed to do all these things where they can't use soap, can't use whatever, but it gets better with age, right? It just cooks better. There's things that get better with age. Your 401k, hopefully, gets better with age. Not in the last couple of years, but yeah, now. But there's other things that don't age so well, right? Milk. If you have children or pets, your carpet, um, uh, your memory, some of us, not getting, mine's not getting any better, I don't know about yours. Uh, my knees, my joints, not getting better with age. Uh, medical treatments over the past century have not, those old treatments don't get better with age, right? I was reading this week about our first president, George Washington, uh, and how he died. He was doing some work on his, uh, on his farm, it was cold, it was rainy, it was snowing. He gets a little sore throat, a little hoarse, uh, can't speak. So they call the doctors, and what do the doctors do? They leech him. And they took 90 ounces of blood from old boy, which I, th- I didn't, I was like, is that a lot? I don't know. I mean, but that's apparently 40% of the body's blood they took out. And they, just put, and they also put this thing called Spanish Fly, which I thought was just a Beastie Boys lyric, but it's actually a real thing. It's like a blistering agent. That, that, because he had pustules on his, and so they put this on it, and they did in one night what the British couldn't do for like seven years. They killed George Washington. <laughs> if he lived today, he would have went and got himself a Z-Pack, some Dayquil, and some Campbell's chicken soup, he would have been fine. But they killed him. Why? Because medical treatment is not aged well. But think about this. How silly how silly would it be for you? You got a little sore throat, you're a little George Washington, got a little hoarseness, maybe you got a little fever. You go to the doc in the box, they say, I'm gonna give you a prescription for a Z-Pack, right? Go get it and you'll be fine in a couple days. How silly for you to say, doc, I appreciate that, but I really just, I was hoping you would leech me. <laughs> I need you to leech me. I mean, I like that old time medicine. Please leech me. How, how ridiculous. We would say, the doctor would say, that's not only dumb, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. It's foolish, right? You don't, you don't go back to the old. We're so much wise. The, the, the new is so much better. A Z-Pack is better than leeches. And, and that idea, in a, in a kind of strange way, is, is exactly what is going on in, in this new book of the Bible that we are going to stud, studying today and spend the next couple months in. Um, so if you have a, a copy of God's Word, if you have an app or a device, go ahead and open to the book of Hebrews. It's not a book about leeches, per se, uh, but it is about going backwards instead of going 
forwards, right? You have a group of people that got a little bit of a sore throat, and so they want to run to the leech instead of running to the Z-Pack, in essence, is what's going on. And so what we're going to do today, real simple, two, two kind of main ideas. We're going to give kind of the background of this, this book. Anytime you, we start a new book of the Bible here, if you're uh, kind of a guest or, or new, we, we kind of go through the background because when you understand what's going on behind the scenes and what's the circumstance, the book will come alive to you. So we're going to kind of cover the background information and then we'll jump into the first four verses, just the first four, because that's going to highlight where he's going the rest of the book. And the rest of the book, he's going to essence say, don't go back to leeches, go to the z Don't go backwards, press forwards. All right. So here's kind of the background information real quick. This is one of the unique books of the New Testament where the background information is a little bit elusive because you don't have an opening that says, this is who wrote it, this is who it's to, this is what's going on. There's no purpose for it's like, this is why I'm writing these things to you. So you kind of have to put the pieces together a little bit more than most of the other New Testament books, okay? So, so let's start with the most obscure of all the uh, background information. Who wrote the book? Who wrote the book? If you have an old copy of like the King James Version at your house, you open it and it'll say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews, right? Which is not true. <laughs> okay. One thing we do know is that the apostle Paul did not write this book for several reasons. Number one, the Greek style is completely different. It doesn't come across in English, but if you get into the Greek language, this author, whoever he is, he's much more eloquent. Paul's very blunt. He's very straightforward. This guy kind of is very eloquent, very educated in his, in his New Testament Greek style. His, the way he formulates his argument is completely different. Usually, Paul will spend the first couple chapters talking about the theology, and then he'll apply it. So Colossians 1 and 2 is the theology. Colossians 3 and 4 is the application. Romans 1 through 11 is theology. 12 through 16 is the application. Ephesians 1 through 3 is theology. And that's how he rolls. This guy kind of weaves it in together. It's not this and that, this and that. And really, the, kind of the biggest reason we know it's not Paul, Paul always up appeals to his apostleship. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the church in Corinth, to the church in Thessalonica, to Titus, to Timothy, my beloved son, all these things. He always identifies himself as Paul and then his apostleship. This writer, whoever it is, is not even an apostle. So in chapter two, he he talks about uh, how they got the message of salvation. He says it was declared by the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus. It was attested to us, he includes himself there, to me and us by those who heard. The apostles, the 500 that are on the mountain when they saw the resurrection, he's not even a first generation believer. He's someone who heard the testimony of Christ from an apostle or from someone else. And then he believes. So this is not an apostle writing the book. So there's been many suggestions over the years. Uh, is it, it could have been uh, Priscilla. It could have been Barnabas. It could have been Dr. Luke. Uh, one suggestion is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Probably the most interesting one is, is a man named Apollos, who was a very eloquent speaker. And he was from Alexandria, so he grew up in a Greek culture. The reality is this, as Origen said so well many years ago, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Only God knows. We don't know. So it's all speculation. But it really doesn't matter because we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspires the word of God. And so that's uh, ultimately who is behind it. Um, the date is probably mid-60s AD, about 30 years after Christ ascended back to heaven. We know that because, number one, uh, Clement... Uh, quotes this book in about 95 AD, so we know it's at least prior to 100. It never mentions the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. It actually assumes that the sacrifices are still taking place. So it's prior to 70 AD, and it seems to be post-Paul's death because he's not mentioned. So somewhere in the late 60s is probably where this book was written, in the life of Timothy, who is mentioned in this book. What's most interesting is what type of literature is it? 
Some have said it's in a letter. Is it, some said it's an exposition of the Old Testament, kind of like a TED talk on the Old Testament. But most modern scholars believe, and I, and I kind of side with them, that this, in essence, is a sermon that has been written down to a church in a specific situation, and it would have been meant to be read in that congregation for their Sunday gatherings. And this kind of comes from chapter 13, where this writer says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. That, that phrase, word of exhortation, is used in the book of Acts of the Apostle Paul when he preaches in Antioch. He gives a word of exhortation. It's used of a sermon. It's used in 1 Timothy 4 when he tells Timothy, when you gather together, make sure there's words of exhortation. That's what we're supposed to be doing when we gather. And so most suggest, and I think rightly so, that this is a sermon. It even sounds like a preacher. I've written to you briefly. 13 chapters ain't brief. But that sounds much like a preacher. Oh, it's only been 40 minutes, right? So it's probably a sermon written to a group of people. He knows them. They know him. He knows what's going on. Uh, and so he directs them and he wants to encourage them. And the, the audience, again, is not mentioned, but we can put the pieces together. We know this is a Jewish audience, Jewish Christians with a Greek upbringing. Because he, he quotes primarily the Old Testament. He uses the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. A lot of uh, early first century Jews lost their ability to speak and read Hebrew, and so they translated the Old Testament into what's called the Septuagint. It's a Greek, it's like the NIV of the Old Testament for them. So uh, he quotes primarily, and he quotes more than any other New Testament author from the Old Testament, he quotes quotes primarily from the Septuagint. So they're Jewish, but they have a a Greek upbringing, uh, and, and what's going on really, is, is he's going to encourage them and he's going to say things like, listen to what I'm saying. If the Spirit is speaking, listen. Don't, don't resist those who are speaking to you because it's a sermon. And the situation that seems to be going on is this. Because they're following Jesus, they've been ostracized from their family. You can imagine a first century Jew leaves Judaism to go follow this crucified Messiah. They lose their jobs. They're losing their businesses. Life has gotten more challenging because they're following Christ. Hasn't come to the point of Nero killing them yet, but they're being thrown in jail. They're losing their property. And so to kind of lessen the persecution and to smooth out, they got this sore throat and they're like, how do I deal with this sore throat? They want to run back to the Old Testament law. They want to run back to Old Testament Judaism. Let's go back to the sacrifices. Let's go back to all these feasts. Let's go back to these things and, and, and neglect Christ and go back to sacrificing lambs and offerings and stuff because it'll make things easier. It'll make things simpler. At least I'll have my family. At least I'll have my job. And so the writer is going to say, that's not only silly, but it's dangerous. And so the main two purposes he's got, number one, he wants to warn them, don't go back to the leeches. It's silly and it's dangerous. And there's going to be five warnings that he kind of places throughout his sermon, right? Most of them are very straightforward and easy to understand. One of them is probably the most difficult interpretive passage in all the Bible, Hebrews chapter six. So it'll be very interesting when we get there to see how Clint handles that passage. (laughs) But the rest of them are pretty straightforward. So he's going to warn them, don't go back, but then he's going to encourage them. Hey, press forward. Don't, I know you're sick. I know it feels, it's hurting right now. I know it's bad, but don't go back to leeches. Press on to that which is better. And so the theme of the entire book, really the theme of the book is very simple. It's this, Christ is superior. In fact, you're gonna see words like superior, 
better, greater, sprinkled throughout the book. It's repeated, better, 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 superior, 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 greater, greater, greater. And it's going to constantly come. No, don't go back to leeches. Don't go back to, to, to trying to blend in. Don't go dry. It's, it's not worth it. It's dangerous. So he's going to press them forward to maturity. Here's, here's kind of a basic outline that I kind of put together. You can do one yourself this week. I kind of broke it into three sections. The, the theme is Christ is superior. And so chapter one through kind of middle of chapter four, he's going to highlight the superiority of, of Christ in his personhood. He's better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than all these things. And there's two warnings in those passages, right? And we'll see that one of them next week. In the middle section of the book, he's going to talk about how Christ is a superior priest. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Melchizedek whoever that guy is. He's better than the covenants. He's better than everything. Then he's going to close the book and talk about how Christ is superior in our living. There should be faith like Christ and hope like Christ and love like Christ. And that's where he's going to go. That's how I outline it. You guys can outline it this week. I do have a homework assignment for all of you, right? School has started, so we're back. So here's your homework assignment. I want you this week at some point to... Read through the book of Hebrews in one sitting. If you're a fast reader, take you about 25, 30 minutes. If you're a slow reader, take you about 45 minutes, right? But read through the entire book in, its, in one sitting. If you're like, I'm not a really great reader, download the ESV app or the iBible app or whatever, and they all have, they all have vocalized reading Bibles. The ESV app has an Irish version. You can listen, if you want to hear Hebrews in Irish, it's not, there's no Irish language, but in English, Irish accent, right? You can do that, right? You, but, but just read through the entirety of it in one sitting. It may seem like, that's oh, a long time. The average American watches three hours of television a day, which is probably true because, you know, uh, one baseball game is three hours from now. So, yeah. But take one hour off and read it. In fact, you can read almost every book of the Bible in under 30 minutes. You realize this? There's, I mean, outside of Psalms, Ezekiel and Isaiah, you could pretty much get through most books in under 15 minutes, some of them under two minutes. Uh, and so what we want to do is we want to be renewing our mind, but read through the book of Hebrews, write some questions down, write some observations down, circle every time you see the word greater, superior, better, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll see these over the next few weeks. And, and the reason why I think this book is important for us is this. Okay, and it, I feel like this is why God has led us to this book when, when I was praying about this probably six, seven months ago is we got a lot of, you know, different theological positions in this room and we got a little pet peeves and those, and those things are great, right? You want to be pre-mill, mill post-mill, great. You want to be Calvinist, Arminian, great. You want to be a cessationist, all these things. Th- those things are fine. But in the end, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? Very simply, we're supposed to follow Christ and we're supposed to help others to follow Christ. And this book will, will get, a, get rid of all the superfluous junk and all the stuff that we're so distracted with, and all the, you know, we got an election coming up, we got all these things, and, and it can just filter, and it can get us back to the simple reality that you exist to glorify God by knowing him, so that you would just follow Christ, and you'd walk with others and help them follow Christ. Because I think we've gotten real busy, even in our church, gotten real busy, and I don't want to be busy. We want to be fruitful. We want to be growing. This book is about pressing on to maturity, it's not about being spiritual babies the rest of our life. And some of us, you know, we're spiritually sucking our thumbs and we have been for 20 years. And this book is gonna say, okay, it's time for us to, to grow up a little bit. There's gonna be some challenging things and I'm not gonna have all the answers. I can promise you I don't. But we're gonna stay high level and say, why is Jesus better? And let's follow him together. 
Why is God worthy of our, of our lives? Let's follow him together. So that's where we are going to go over these next few weeks. Um, let me read our first four verses, because this is kind of the theme of the book. Um, and then we'll, we'll kind of unpack them together uh, just over the next few minutes, because this is really where we're going. It's, not, it's just kind of the big idea of where this book's going to go. So chapter one, verse one. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he starts off, really my favorite opening in all of any Bible, uh, right? Because it sounds a lot like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but it's a long ago. At many times and in many ways. And for the original audience, a Jewish audience, very familiar with the Old Testament, very familiar with the Torah and the Psalms, which is going to quote from extensively. He says this. They understand he's talking about the Old Testament. He says, long ago, many times, many ways, what happened? Here's the main idea of the, the, of the verse. The verb, God, what? Spoke. That God revealed. That he didn't leave things hidden. He didn't hide. He didn't leave us aimless. He didn't leave us wandering. If he didn't speak, he would have. We'd be aimless. We'd be wandering around not knowing anything. But God spoke. And, and he didn't just speak in like one thing. In many ways. Many times. How, how has God spoken? The most simple and obvious is this, that the heavens, the psalmist says, declare what? The glory of God. You cannot go outside on a clear night, even a, even a cloudy night, and look up and say, there is no God. There is no God, right? Because God has clearly revealed. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. He says, his attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. It's on purpose. God, through creation, is trying to get your attention and say, look how great I am. See those stars? I'm awesome. Did you guys see that moon last week? That orange moon, unbelievable, it was beautiful. That moon was saying, by the way, your God is awesome. He's awesome. When the storm comes through, that powerful storm that came, what, last Sunday night and the lightning, I was just thinking, God is awesome. Now we're scared and we don't want the air conditioning to go out, but, but <laughs> God is awesome because the heavens declare. But that's not the only way God has spoken. Think about all the ways that God has spoken. Many ways. Think about just your Bible, if you're familiar with the Old Testament. God starts speaking face-to-face with Adam and Eve as they're walking in the cool of the day. God speaks through a rainbow. You get that? There's a reason why there's a rainbow. There's no lucky charms or, or gold at the end of it. The rainbow says what? It says that God will never flood the world again. It's a promise. Every time you see one, it's a reminder. God speaks through a rainbow. He speaks on tablets of stone. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. He speaks to Moses from a bush 
on fire. And a pillar, a cloud, he speaks to the people of Israel. And Daniel, his hand, hand shows up and starts writing on a wall. He speaks through it. He speaks through the message of a fish swallowing a knucklehead prophet. He speaks. He speaks even through a donkey. Do you know that, that passage? Balaam's donkey says, why are you hitting me? He speaks even through a donkey because God speaks. And the primary way he spoke in the Old Testament was what? Through prophets, through Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and, and Daniel and Hosea and Amos and Samuel and Elijah, that God revealed things and then they wrote it down. And, and I love that it says he spoke in many ways because here's the reality. I need many ways, don't you? I need, more, I need more than just one thing because if all I had, let me completely transparent, I do not love the book of Leviticus. And Ezekiel scares me. I often don't know, besides that wheel in the sky, I just, I feel like the only thing I know about the wheel in the sky is it's a great 1980s journey song. And so if all I have is Leviticus and Ezekiel, I'm kind of confused. But God speaks in many ways. He gives us the Psalms. They're clear. He gives me Proverbs. I get that. I get the message of Jonah. I, I understand this Hosea and what's going on there. And so he speaks. Why? Because God wants us to know him, that he has not been silent, that he is not withdrawn, that he is not an uncommunicating God. He speaks and he has spoken. And even in the Old Testament, he spoke through fragments and little pieces. But here's where the contrast goes. This is where, where the writer says, he says, yeah, that he spoke, but, but in these last days, and it's going to be an argument from lesser to greater right? In these last days, and what last days just means is, is ever since Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches his sermon on Pentecost, he says, we're living in the last days. Not last days chronologically necessarily, although Jesus could come back today. It could be another 2,000 years. We do not know. But we're, we're talking last days theologically, that there's nothing else in redemptive history that has to happen besides him returning. We've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. But he says, in these last days, God has spoken, not in many ways, not in many times. He's spoken to us by his son. By his son. Remember that show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I used to love that show when Regis was the host. And they would say, what? Is that your final answer? Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, is God's final answer. It's this final answer. He answered, he is the climatic, he is the superlative, he is the definitive and best final word. And the point is, God was eager in, in the Old Testament to reveal himself. How much more to reveal who he is in himself in his son? And we could talk a lot about theology, and I, and I don't want to go there. You can read all about that and listen to other sermons. Here's the BE on the eye chart. Here's what I want us to grasp and us to see. And that's where I think the Spirit of God is, is really moving through this book, is that God not only spoke in the Old Testament, and God not only spoke in the 33 years that, that Jesus was living physically on this earth, that God is still today speaking to his people today, and he does it through his son. You're going you're gonna to see in this book, today, if you hear his voice, today, don't harden your heart. He's still speaking. 
speaking out by his son. Why? What is another title for the son? He is the Lagos. In the beginning was the Lagos, the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The, the Lord Jesus himself is present by his spirit in his word. And so how do we hear from God? How do we hear his word? Well, we just did it when I read. It wasn't me. It was God's word speaking. The son of God is speaking to you, his people, his sheep, my sheep hear my voice. They hear me. They listen to me. Right. And and there's a reason why. Remember when John 16, the disciples are, are, they're knuckleheads. They just are. They're asking all these questions. And Jesus like, you still don't get it. You still don't get it. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, my spirit, he's going to lead you in all truth, all truth, all truth. There is not like, what job should I take? And should I marry that person or that person? Or should I, should I go to this college? Those things are important, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about all truth regards himself and, and who he is and, and revealing God. And so don't you ever wonder how, how the disciples go from complete theological morons to like scholars overnight? It's because the spirit of God dwells in them. The spirit of who? Of Christ himself. So when you say, I I wish Jesus was here. Jesus is here right now by his spirit in his church, in his bride. He is present and his word, he speaks through his word. Not just in the New Testament either. Because I know we're like, oh, we want to be red leather Christians, which means we're just going to look at the words of Jesus. But the apostle, uh, you know, John is not like, this is Jesus's words. He's not pulling out the red quill and, oh, no, we're, this is, this is, we're going to write this in a different color. It's all the Lord Jesus's words. Peter says that the prophets, the Old Testament prophets were moved by who? The spirit of Christ. This is why we study the Psalms and the Psalms are still relevant. When we read Psalm 23 and it says, the Lord, Yahweh is my shepherd. You know who ultimately is inviting you to, to, to waters and to green pastures? It's the Lord Jesus himself through the words of David, but it's the spirit of Christ moving. It's Jesus inviting you to him, the good shepherd. Last week, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, God. Who's inviting you to long for him? It's the Lord Jesus himself, ultimately through the words of scripture. He's the source. He's speaking through the Old Testament. He's speaking through the New Testament. Does that mean that God can't speak in other ways? No, I'm I'm not saying that. Can God use other means? Can he use people like me? Can he use visions? Can he use his dreams? He absolutely can. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But the primary way in which God speaks to us is through his word. And so we have, we have, you know, culture just wants God, God, I want you to speak to me. God, I want you to speak to me. And we're looking out there and and he's kind of saying like, You want to know how, how to handle a, a difficult boss? You, you want to know how, how to handle this relationship challenge? Right? It doesn't mean we don't need a word of encouragement. It doesn't mean we don't need those things. But he's spoken. And his word is final. And he is still speaking. And the amazing thing is he's using broken people like us to do so. That's, that's the miracle of miracles. Right? So, so this writer is going to later say... That the, the word of God is living. The word of God is active. Do we believe that? I mean, do we really believe that? Because if we did, I don't think it would be a challenging homework assignment to say, let's go read Hebrews together. Let's, let's put it on in the car on the way to school this week. Let's, let's just, you know, if it's really alive, if Jesus is really speaking, then we ought to listen. 
That's what, that's what the writer is going to say to us. And there's all sorts of implications there. We don't add to the word of God and take away from the word of God. That's the, that's the end of the Bible. He says, don't add or take away from what I've said because I'll add to the curses, right? And I'll add to the blessings for those who believe. Right? So we don't say, well, that, didn't really, that doesn't really mean that. I, that, was just, that was just Paul. That wasn't Jesus. We don't, we don't say that because we don't add or take away. This is our source of truth. I think we should interpret the Bible Christologically. Yes, historically and grammatically, but it doesn't mean we see Jesus under every rock, but we should see Christ in the Old Testament, that these things pointing to him, and we should look back at, this is how I'm supposed to be like Christ. This is what Christ does. Do we fall short? Yes, but that's what we're supposed to do. I think it means we should study and read deeply because God speaks to us through his word. He impresses in a, in a miraculous way. His spirit uses the word, and it's just like, man, I needed to hear that. I think we should trust in the power of the word of God. I, I heard a preacher this week say, and I thought, that's, that's great. I'm going to start praying that. He said that he prays every Sunday that his people would hear a better sermon than the one he preaches. I'm thinking that's good. Because it's not, it can't be about us. It's got to be about him. It's got to be his. Do you believe that the word of God is powerful? If so, then you know, it seems like sermons are a silly thing. They kind of are. You come in the room, talk for 30, 40, 40 minutes and go... But we believe that there's power in what God has said. Power to change lives, power to change us, power to move. And so we do this. We trust in the power of God's word and that's where he's gonna go. And so he's gonna give us several reasons why. Just kind of, he's assuming that you're gonna ask questions. Why should I listen to the word of God? Why should I listen to Jesus? And so he's gonna, you know, rattle off that he's gonna unpack later seven reasons why Jesus is superior, that he is greater. And I love that word superior. Because it's not a word we use a lot, right? There's Lake Superior, which means it's the biggest lake. I assume it is anyway. Maybe it's not, but I assume it is. But superior means it's, it stands above. It, it's, it's different. It's unrivaled. It's matchless. Uh, if you're a baseball uh, guy or girl, you, you know the name Shohei Otani, right? Because he is what I would say superior, because not only is he a great pitcher, because he is, but he also hits 50 home runs a year. There's a lot of great pitchers, and there's a lot of guys that hit 50 home runs, but there's not a lot of guys that pitch and hit 50 home runs. He is head and shoulders above everybody else. He is superior, and he's nothing compared to the superiority of the Lord Jesus over everything else. He stands above it. He's going to highlight, and I'll just move quickly through the seven reasons why he does. It says, in these last days, he's spoken us to his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is superior because he's the heir of all things. And since he's the heir of all things, everything is his. That means he can do what he says he's gonna do. If all things are at his disposal, that means he has the ability to make good on every promise he's ever made. That means that's why you can trust him because everything is his. He is the heir, right? All of it. And again, all means all. And do you know who's included in all? Use. You're included in all. You got, remember in, you know, Toy Story, you got Andy on your foot. Look at your foot. It says the Lord Jesus right on your foot. You belong to him. Everything does. The universe belongs to him. This is why missions is not just about telling people about Jesus. That is true. We don't go to, to the world. We go to the nations. Why? Because the nations are his and we are going to bring back to him what is rightfully his. That's the ultimate goal in missions is to bring back what is rightfully God's. He is the heir. He is, what is the next thing he say? He is the creator through whom also he created the world. 
that the Lord Jesus is the creator of all things. So back in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The, the earth was formless and void. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the, of the waters of the deep. And then God says what? Let there be light. Who was the one speaking, let there be light? The Lord Jesus was the one speaking. That God the Father used God the Son as the agent of creation. This is Colossians 1.16. That by him, for him, and through him, all things are created. That he was the one who created all things. That's why it's all his, right? He's the creator. Verse three and four, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That God is the sustainer. Jesus sustains and upholds all things. So the reason why at this, I was reading about it again this week, just blogs that are way above my head, but at the subatomic level, things hold together when, when physicists don't understand why. They have to like, well, something's going on at that level. We call it the strong force. The reason why the quarks do this and the quark, you know, all these things. And I don't really care about that. I just know this. The reason why it is because God created physical principles that, that makes the atom not split apart like it should. Right? That God creates gravity and he creates all these things because he sustains them. He is the creator and the sustainer. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And ultimately what he's saying there is, is that the Lord Jesus, he is, he is God. That when he takes on humanity at Bethlehem, that is the glory of God being revealed in the Lord Jesus. Right? God is manifesting his glory. So the disciples say, we saw his glory, glory from the begotten. It says he's the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. We often as preachers, we'll misspeak and say things like, oh, if you see Jesus, you see what God the Father is like. You ever hear that? It's not a true statement. It's not what God is like. That's not what Jesus says. He says, you've seen me, you've seen my dad. It's not that God is like, it's this, you've seen the Father, right? He is the exact imprint. He's the only son who is the exact imprint of the father. I have three boys, awesome boys, super proud of them. And, and in many ways, they're like me. And in many ways, they are not. I got one that's studying to be uh, in the medical field. I hate hospitals. I hate doctor's offices. I don't even want to go drive by them. Love you, doctors. Love you, nurses. I don't want to be in a hospital. That's where he's going to work. I got one that's very creative and thoughtful. I don't have a created bone in my body. And some would say I don't have a thoughtful one either. I have one child, he's even named after me, and he is a fan of the Atlanta Braves. You couldn't be more opposite. They're they're like me, but they're not the exact imprint of me. They're all taller than me, praise God, too. We're getting there. They're, They're not exactly like me. Jesus is exactly like the Father. He's God. He's superior. Right? After making purification for sins... He's the only one that could do that. He atoned for sin. Could Moses do that? No. Could Abraham do that? No. Could David do that? No. Could Peter do that? No. Could anybody, Billy Graham, do that? No. Jesus atoned for sin. Did what no one else could do. Conquered sin, the grave, and death. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand. He sat down. Why is that significant? We'll come to this later in the the book, but the idea is this. Every parent knows. When do you finally get to sit down? Kitchen's clean. Uh, dogs have let it out, clothes for tomorrow's done. Everything is finally done. 10.30 at night, let's have a bowl of ice cream right now. It's not a good time for ice cream, but it's always a good time for ice cream. When everything's done, 
Then you sit down. Jesus is done. His atoning work is done. His redemptive work is done. That doesn't mean he's just sitting around doing nothing. He is interceding for us right now. Do you know that? Jesus is interceding for us right now. He's still holding the universe together. But the next thing redemptively is the father will say, go get your bride. And he will stand up and he will come get his church. That's the next thing. Until then, he's seated. He only stands up one time in the New Testament after he's seated. Do you know what it was for? The first martyr of the church, Stephen. He stands. But otherwise, he's seated because he is done. He's accomplished everything. And then finally, he says, having become much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And this is what he's going to unpack the rest of chapter one and chapter two. And we'll look at it more next week. We'll talk angels a little bit. But the idea is this. Angels are the greatest and most powerful spiritual beings ever created. I mean, you don't go toe-to-toe and one angel could take out the entire world. They just, they're significantly stronger and mightier than us, right? Significantly, right? And what the writer is going to argue is that Jesus makes angels look like nothing. It's like your little 12-year-old football team won the state championship. Yay. Okay, go play the Bulldogs now. What's going to happen? Someone's going to die. Someone's going to die. Your quarterback is going to die. Your offensive line is going to get smushed. Why? Because there's a superiority there that's not even comparable. Think about this. As great as that distance is, Jesus is infinitely greater than the most powerful creatures ever made. Every angel is, he's infinitely more powerful. He is greater than the mightiest. He is superior. And so where the author is going to take us is, if he is all these things, man, shouldn't we listen to him? Shouldn't we love him? Because the miracle of miracles is though he is mighty and creator and sustainer and all these things, for some odd reason, he loves us. And for some reason, he wants you to know him. And he knows where you've been. He knows all your junk and your garbage. He knows. And yet he still says, please, today, don't harden your heart. Enter into my rest. Don't neglect such a great salvation. Don't don't fall away. Don't go back to leeches. Why do you want to go back to leeches when you have something so much better in the Lord Jesus? And that's where we're going to go these next several months. Not running back to it. Look, things are going to get challenging. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be hardship. And it might be easier to just go with the flow. And it might be easier to give in. And what this author is going to say is, It may be easier, but it's not better. Jesus is better. The Lord Jesus. God the Father exalts the Son as the Son exalts the Father. The Spirit points to them both, ultimately saying, follow him. Be like him. Look what he's done for us. So that's where we're going to spend the next few months trying our best to hear from him, follow him, and be like him. Let me pray and we'll respond just by thinking about that and singing. Father, I pray for... These next few months as we crack open this, this letter, this sermon that was written 2,000 years ago, but yet uh, I think will speak to us as, as your spirit is using it. I pray that we would have ears to hear and that we would see you as better, better than what the world lies to us about, better than what our hearts kind of pull us to, that you are superior. And even though you are so far above us, you became one of us, you loved us. You draw near to us. You even put your spirit in us so that we can be with you forever. So just, just draw us near to you, Lord, these next couple months and change us to be more like your son. Pray in Christ's name, amen. You guys can stand as we